Okay, so, been kind of on a roll for the last uh, month or so, talking about this contemplative way, as uh, um, Frank was talking about, is really who we are in, in so many ways, because to follow Jesus as we understand him as a first century Jew and what he was teaching from that perspective requires a silence and solitude that he was constantly going out into the wilderness to find. He would take these breaks and go out, come back, do his work, but then go back out. That silence at the core is everything. If we're really going to connect, if we're really going to understand who this father is, what this relationship is all about, we can't do it in the noise. We can't do it with our heads screaming 60 miles an hour constantly, past, future, abstract, lists, all that stuff. There is no way that God as God is can cut through that noise. What we will end up with is God as we project God out of all of that noise if we keep it going. And so trying to, to understand what is this journey about? How does it work? What does it look like? I um, had the opportunity through one of our members here to be able to speak Thursday night at St. Andrew's Presbyterian Church in Newport Beach to um, a divorce recovery workshop that was then moving into new directions for singles and um, they asked me to speak. And what I was speaking on was kind of the, the same theme here, the shape of the journey. You know, when you go through something like divorce and you're wounded to the extent that you're wounded, and it doesn't have to just be divorce. It can be loss of any type, trauma of any type. And it just seems like nothing makes sense. It seems like you're a, a cosmic victim, that everything has conspired to put you in this place. But if we start to realize, as we've talked in here about the hero's journey and about rites of passage, that they always begin with the wounding, that the pain of the wounding is the only force powerful enough to motivate us to leave what is familiar, to leave what is comfortable, to move from everything that we have built around us for security into the new world, the next level, the, the new space that we have to move into if we're going to continue to grow as human beings, continue to grow in relationship with God. And so the shape of the journey to understand how that works helps so much to be able to deal with the pain that you can't explain, with the woundings that you can't justify logically in any way. And so I was able to, to try to get this across, to, to talk about these themes, and got a question from one woman that um, was really heartfelt. And she wanted to know, because we were talking about every time the wounding hits, you are called on another journey, another cycle, another move into the next level of, of your awareness. And she wanted to know how you know your calling. How do you know your calling? How do you know what your calling is? Classic question, you know. This was not necessarily a religious group. They weren't speaking in religious terms, but from, you know, the religious community, what I'm often hearing is, what is God's will for my life? And so we want to know these things. We want to know the details. You know, we use the, the uh, analogy of the GPS lady who gives you the street-by-street -street directions. And that's what we want. We want street-by-street -street directions to know where we're going so we don't take any missteps, but we don't get street-by-street -street directions from God. And every time you ask him for such, he says, no, you're not going to get that. You're going to get the sign of Jonah, Jesus said. Well, what's that? Well, that's just the shape of the journey. It's the descent, the move from wounding into a descent and then back up the other side. And so as I was trying to answer her, I was 
using my classic way of dealing with, you know, trying to know the specifics from God and saying that God's will for our lives is not a what, it's not the details, it's not the street-by-street directions, it's the how. It's the way by which we live our lives. It's the attitude with which we approach life. It's the, the connection, the focus and the value on unity and presence that makes any what that we choose right in the center of God's will. Well, I can tell this isn't really what she wanted. <laughs> you know, it, it wasn't a completely satisfying answer, and it never is, especially if you're looking because you feel this sense of risk for something more concrete. But it's life. It's what life actually presents. It's the way God works with us. But as I was thinking about it over the last few days, I was thinking that there's really more to it than just that. It's more to the point of how we look at life itself, going beyond just some sort of, of a, you know, philosophical idea. How we look at life is, is really going to be at issue if we're going to answer this question of calling, this question of, of moving forward in life fully. We've got to understand something about life that maybe we haven't fully understood yet. Have you ever heard the saying that play is the work of the child? Have you ever heard that one before? Play is the work of the child. Actually, it was uh, Maria Montessori who said that. So you know her from all her Montessori. Play is the work of the child. And and there's a little article that I found that I I wanted to read you a bit of. Just just listen to this and and we'll, we'll make sense of it. Play is the work of the child. Play activities are essential to healthy development for children and adolescents. Research shows that 75% of brain development occurs after birth. The activities engaged in by children both stimulate and influence the pattern of the connections made between the nerve cells. This process influences the development of fine and gross motor skills, language, socialization, personal awareness, emotional well-being, creativity, problem-solving, and learning ability. The most important role that play can have is to help children be active, make choices and practice actions to mastery. They should have experience with a wide variety of content, art, music, language, science, math, social relations because each is important for the development of a complex and integrated brain. Play that links sensory motor, cognitive, and social-emotional experiences provide an ideal setting for brain development. If play is the work of the child, toys are the tools. I love that. Through toys, children learn about their world, themselves, and others. Toys teach children to figure out how things work, especially if they're always pulling them apart, right? Like our kids did. Toys teach kids how to pick up new ideas, build muscle control and strength, use their imagination, solve problems, and learn to cooperate with others. So play and the toys are doing all of that. Do you think the child has any idea what's going on while they're playing with their toys? Of course not. They're just playing. But as they play, as they immerse themselves in the play, Stuff is happening in the background. All this is going on simply as they engage in the play that they love to do anyway. When I joined, I, out of high school, for those of, you, those of you who don't know, I joined a, a monastery, a religious order. 
And I went to the House of Formation outside of Chicago. And the first thing they did when we all arrived was uh, they gave us all the rules. Mm, all the rules. I hated these rules. I, I, was, uh, I was kind of a rebel back then anyway, but the rules to me seemed so arbitrary and so silly that I, I thought it was my absolute duty to break them or, or at least bend them. You know, One of the rules was that we had to wear shoes and socks inside the hall at all times. Well, I had spent most of my life barefoot to that point whenever I could, even, even today. As soon as I hit the door, my shoes are off. But um, yeah, I would push that one. I couldn't see why in the world that had to be so. We had a lights out time. We had a no napping in the afternoon rule. We had chores that we had to do at regular intervals. We had specific TV time only from this time to this time on certain nights a week. And then we all sat in there together and didn't get to choose the station. The station was chosen for us. And so we didn't get to choose these things. And it was just a set of rules after rules after rules, all these things that we had to do. There was chapel, of course, every morning, first thing at 7 o'clock. We said the office three times a day. And so in addition to all our studies and everything else that we did. And so there was this very kind of strict disciplinary thing that I was constantly pushing on and, and trying to get away with because I didn't understand why in the world I needed to do all that. Now I can look back and I realize that house contained monks or postulants from the age of 17 to 70 plus. And if we, anyone who actually made it through the training program and went into one of the houses, it was a teaching order, they would have been living with monks from all across the social spectrum, all across the age spectrum, from all different places in the world. How in the world can you live with such a diverse group if you haven't established certain baseline of rules that make everyone comfortable? Maybe not everyone happy, but everyone comfortable. The rules were there to teach me, all of us, how to live in community with this diverse group of men. I didn't realize it at the time. I was bucking against it. I wasn't getting the message until later on. But that's what the rules were for. To me, they were just restrictions and arbitrary at that. But in the background, once I finally started to follow them, they were giving me all sorts of things that I couldn't have gotten any other way. You remember the Karate Kid, wax on, wax off? You know, we've talked about that in here before. Kid wants to learn to fight. He wants to know karate. And he goes to the master, and the master tells him to wax his cars. But do it this way. Wax on, wax off. When he's done with waxing the cars, it's sand the floor. But do it this way. And when it's, he's done with that, it's paint the fence. But do it this way. Now, the kid eventually is angry because he's just doing all this work for free, and he's not getting any training, and they have this big blowout where he finally starts to realize that every one of those movements was something that he was going to need either on defense or offense in his training. Why didn't the master tell him what was going on? Why did he have him go through all this work, going to the place where he was actually angry and feeling you know, manipulated and put upon? Why didn't he tell him what was going on? Because if he knew that he was practicing a karate move, he would have brought everything that he thought he knew about karate into the frame. And it would have messed everything up. If there's a theme growing between these examples I'm giving you, 
it's that, what John Lennon said, right? It's right there. Life is what happens when we're busy making other plans. I love that. Life is what happens when we're busy making other plans. Our life is like the children's play. What play is to the child, our work is to us. What the toys are to the child, our tools are to us. When we just immerse ourselves in life, when we immerse ourselves in the rules of the group, we're learning something that is so key and so important that we need to know if we're going to be able to take this journey the way it's supposed to be taken. We look at the toys and we look at the play of the child and we dismiss them as being intrinsically, essentially meaningless. It's just play, it's something, it's a diversion, it's something the child does, and they're going to grow up and they're going to grow out of that. So we dismiss it because we don't see the deeper meaning of what that play is doing, how it's developing that child, the skills and the understanding that it's giving them to be able to move into the adult world with the kind of development that they're supposed to have. And then we turn around and we miss the deeper meaning of our own lives, of our own work, of what we do day in, day, day in and day out, because we take our work and our tools, our play, literally. We think that it is intrinsically important. The play is not important, but this job is, this work is, you know, building this legacy is, that has some intrinsic importance, some value in and of itself. Rather than realizing it means exactly the same thing to the cosmos as the play and the toys of the child. Everything that we do is absolutely meaningless on one level and absolutely meaningful and purposeful at the deeper level. Because everything we do, if we are really immersed in it, if we're really going after it, even though the task itself is not the point, what we are learning underneath it is everything. It's everything that we're trying to do. As we live, as we die, as we work, as we play, as we marry, as we divorce, as we succeed, as we fail, as we love or hate, what is it that we're really doing? What is it that we're really learning? Underneath all of those things, what's really going on? Take a look at what Jesus says at Luke 17. We've quoted this often in here, I know. The kingdom of God comes not with observation. Neither shall they say, look here or look there. For behold, the kingdom of God is within you, among you, in the midst. And we've talked about this over again and over and over again, that we mistake the search for kingdom, we mistake the spiritual search and journey for an exterior search, that there's something out there that we have to acquire and bring in. And Jesus is saying, no, it's just the opposite. It's an interior journey that what you seek is already within. It's already inside you. It just needs to be uncovered. We've talked about so many times that the spiritual journey is so much more about subtraction than addition. It's about flushing and then filling. It's about emptying and then fulfilling. All these things are at issue here. But I think there's even a deeper level to what Jesus is trying to get across to us here. Because in saying that the kingdom is not out there, but it's within, he's basically saying that the search for kingdom is really, truly, at root, most deeply, it's a search for ourselves. It's a search for our own identity, who we really are. 
so that we can know what we're all about, so we can know what our calling is, or we can choose our calling. We can know what meaning and purpose is in our lives because we know who we are. Until we know that, how in the world can life have any meaning, purpose, or fulfillment? So many of us are fixated in what we think is our identity on our roles that we play and the accomplishments that we have done and the attributes that we show. And yet anything that can be taken from us is not who we really are. And at death, all of that will be taken from us. That's why we fear death so much. So what is this real self that this way of Jesus, he says the only way to Father, is really going to be able to realize for us in our lives? Here's the thing. We can't approach this search directly. And this happens over and over again with with, with so much of life. The really important things in life, the truly profound things in life, can't be approached directly. Who we are isn't what we can approach directly because as soon as we think about our identity, as soon as we say it out loud, put a word to it, you know, we've already lost it. It's already been changed. It's already something named that eventually is going to be taken from us. Why do you think that Jesus said, if you want to find your life, you have to lose it? And anyone who's willing to lose their lives for my sake is going to find it. The more that we go after our identity, go after meaning and purpose and fulfillment, the more it just evaporates before us. The more we feel more and more unfulfilled, discontent. We feel that sense of meaninglessness in life because we're just skimming along the surface and we're not going down deeply to where Jesus is trying to really take us. Our identity, who we really are, the the fruit of this, this journey, this way of Jesus to kingdom and to Father, can only be found as we lose ourselves, immerse ourselves in the play of life. We don't go after it trying to figure it out. We just lose ourselves in what we're doing. We start to realize that the things that we're working so hard for don't have any intrinsic value. But the process of moving through to get them, to work for them, to strive for excellence and do all the things that we do in our lives is teaching us all these things underneath bringing us more and more connection as we go. Our identity, who we are, can only be found as we lose or immerse ourselves in the play of life. To be fully connected, to be fully present to our moments, to our work, to what we do, is the only purpose or meaning that we're ever going to get in life. It's not about those details. It's not about the what's. It's the the sense, the reality of the connection that makes everything come alive. And it comes from the sides. It's a byproduct of living this life the way Jesus has prescribed it for us, that all this stuff comes from the sides where we never saw it coming. We're focused out here, but all this stuff is coming in from the sides as we just continue to show up, to be faithful, to work on these things. It works so differently than we think it's supposed to work. We read this psalm a few, a couple of weeks ago, but I want to read it again. Psalms 139, verse 7. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? 
If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there, your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. When we have experienced this kind of connection, this kind of presence, this kind of knowing the nature of our Father, when this becomes true for us and we can articulate it in some way to this level of conviction, then we have begun to learn indirectly that our identity can only be realized in relation to everything else. Only in relation to everything else. That includes God's Spirit. It includes each one of us. It includes all of creation. It includes our jobs. It includes everything, our families, our homes, and everything that we experience in this life. Our identity does not exist alone. It doesn't exist separately. It can't do that. It's meaningless if we take our identity out and try to hold it. It's only in the living of connection that we realize who we really are. Truthfully, we remember who we really are. We knew. We experienced it as children. We lost it. We're trying to remember You want to try to understand the Trinity most profoundly? Understand it as connection. Understand it as pure relationship. Understand it as never one identity existing only on its own, but multiple identities functioning as one. has to be. We don't exist apart from everything that God is, everything that God has done, everything that God has created, Why did Jesus say over and over and over again, I and the Father are one? I don't do anything that the Father doesn't do through me. I don't have any initiative of my own. I only do what the Father shows me. Identity only exists in relationship to the ultimate reality and everything around us. This is what we're trying to learn. This is what is happening as we move through this. It comes as this byproduct when we lose ourselves in the playing of life. I wanted to read one more thing for you and see if this helps. It's a little bit egg-headed, but it does get the point across. And it's in your inserts if you want to follow along because they use some crazy words here. This comes from one of uh, Richard Rohr's meditations. We used to believe that reality was comprised of little separate elemental building blocks. But now we realize that nothing exists in isolation. Rather, everything exists as one interconnected whole. Remember the movie Avatar? The whole planet? One interconnected whole. Every being on it was connected. That's really true at the spiritual level. Quantum physics is based on the primacy of energy and the interconnectedness of all that exists. Being, being, is intrinsically relational and exists as unbroken wholeness. Each part is connected with every other part. We are fundamentally holes within holes. W-H-O-L-E-S, for those of you who aren't following along. The notion that all these fragments exist separately is evidently an illusion, and this illusion cannot do other than lead to endless conflict and confusion. Indeed, the attempt to live according to the notion that the fragments are really separate is, in essence, what has led to the creation 
of an overall environment that is neither physically nor mentally healthy. The properties of the parts are not intrinsic properties, but can be understood only within the context of the larger whole. So anything that we look at, whether it's a person or whether it's a thing, those properties only exist again in relationship to everything. They don't exist separately, apart. What we call a part is merely a pattern in an inseparable web of relationships. Shifting from viewing parts to the whole requires us to transition from thinking about each thing around us as an object to seeing the relationships between them, connecting all those dots. Everything around us is held in a system which is an integrated whole whose essential properties arise from the relationships between its parts. Nature is an interlocking network of systems, an unbearable wholeness of beings. Nature is more flow than fixed, like a choreographed ballet or a symphony. Life evolves toward ever-increasing wholeness and consciousness and something more, love. Love is literally what created all of this because love is an expression of unity, oneness, connection. You see, each wounding of life that we endure, each loss that we endure, every time the ground shifts out from underneath us and we can't recognize the landscape anymore and the world that we knew and the world that we are comfortable with, even complacent with, is now gone, what do you do? I mean, come on, everyone in here has experienced that, right? If you've been through a divorce, you've experienced that. If you had to go into rehab and treatment, you experienced that. If you had a breakup with a boyfriend or a girlfriend, you experienced that. If you lost a job, if you got a job, if you marry someone from Ireland and you're going to live in Ireland, hero's journey, right? Every time we experience one of these things that changes fundamentally the world that we know is a call to immerse ourselves again into the new world. It's a call to erase the edges that we've drawn around our imagined identity. We do that. And even after we go through one of these unsettling periods, as soon as we get comfortable again, what do we do? We redraw all those lines. We redraw the edges around identity. We think we know who we are out there someplace by our roles and our accomplishments and and our attributes again. And so... Guess what happens? Here comes another hurt, another wounding, another ground-shifting change that forces us, if we're willing, we have to answer the call, to erase those edges again. And it has to happen over and over because every time we get comfortable, we forget who we really are until we move back into that doorway, into that liminal space that takes us someplace else. You do a few circuits of these Aware with awareness, with presence, understanding what it is you're doing, then you're going to learn to see that the challenges of life are not traumas or victimization. They're actually opportunities to remember more and more who we really are. This is life. This is the way it works. We just answer the call. We just show up. And when the ground changes underneath us, We don't, well, we maybe take a few moments to pout over it, you know? We're human, right? But then we move through that and realize this is the next opportunity to find out more of who we really are. 